Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Sunday, September 23rd, 2018, starting at 3.55 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 173rd episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kenneth Irving about the life and work of Michelle Gochlin and um, some of his research, including the famous Mars effect. So, hey, Ken, thanks for joining me today. Well, it's uh, nice of you to have me. Yeah, I'm really glad. Thank you so much for agreeing to to do this talk with me because I've been wanting to do um, an episode on the work of Gokulin for a long time, and you know, it's hard to find somebody who has enough background and history with this subject to really be able to speak with it authoritatively. But you're you're one of the few people that actually wrote a book connected with or co co-authored a book connected to Gokulin's work, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Which and, is unfortunately out of print at the moment. Sure. Uh, so the title of that book is The Tenacious Mars Effect, um, and you co-authored that with Sweetbert Ertel. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Sweetbert. Sweetbert. Okay. And Sweet that was Bert. in And his last name, I could never pronounce, as simple as it looks. Ertel, sure. I always say Ertel. Sure. So you guys published a book kind of documenting some of the some of Gokulin's findings and some of the controversy surrounding it in 1996, which which was just a few years after he died in 2000 or in 1991. Yes. Um, so why don't we open by talking? Let's do a little bit of an intro and first talk about who he was. Um, so he 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 lived from he was born in 1928 and he died in 1991. He's usually known to astrologers at a, as a statistician who claimed to find scientific evidence for astrology, basically, right? Do you think? Would you say that that's an accurate? Yeah, yes, you have to qualify the evidence for astrology part because there were some things he didn't find evidence for. He found some evidence for something new in astrology. It's okay. probably a good way to put it. Sure. So he worked with his his partner Francois Gokulin, who lived from nineteen uh, twenty nine to two thousand seven, mm -hmm. and they worked as sort of a partnership until they separated in the mid nineteen eighties. Um, but yes. she was kind of like a, a partner with him in his work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, she um, was. She was very very crucial, especially at the beginning. Sure. So, um, and his other claim to fame is that he conducted the largest scale statistical tests on astrology ever so far, at least in terms of testing timed birth charts using large sample sizes, right? Yes, very, very but, much so. I, it's prob probably going to be a long time before anybody matches that record. Sure. So there, there's been like other types of like attempts to scientifically test astrology in different ways using like sun signs or matching like um attempting to match like charts to biographies or other things mm -hmm. like that tests of astrologers yes. but this was both the first time that anybody had done a large scale statistical study using hundreds of thousands of pieces of of birth data of time charts but also even since that time it's still probably the largest study that's been done the largest group of studies, actually, because uh, in the 145,000 bits of birth data that, that he and uh, Francoise collected, there were multiple professions, multiple uh, – there were 
criminals, actually, which you never hear much about. There were, uh, uh, he studied longevity and uh, he, he approached it from a variety of, of source of, of, of avenues, but mostly he con- concentrated on the professions, professional success, because okay. that's where the real results were. Sure. Um, and he, he ended up publishing many books, uh, which included both sort of data collections where he published his actual data that he was drawing on for some of these studies, as well as other books that sort of summarized some of his conclusions and mm-hmm. presented some of his arguments. Um, eventually, uh, he became embroiled in a conflict with the scientific and skeptical communities over replicating some of his tests. Uh, and then uh, eventually he died in 1991. So that was kind of like the the introduction. So this is basically going to be a discussion on science and astrology. And one of the most notable, I mean, it has to be the most notable attempts to validate astrology scientifically that's taken place in modern times, basically, right? I would say so, yes. Okay. All right. So let's start at the beginning by talking about some background information about about Gokulin. And one of the myth, myths that I sometimes hear repeated still in the astrological community, I heard it again even just a week ago, was that Gokulin started out as a skeptic who set out to debunk astrology, but then when he ran the test, suddenly he found that it was working and became convinced that it was a real thing. So could you actually clarify that? Because in reality, he he started out with an interest in astrology from an early age, right? Yeah, and there's a reason for that behind that that uh, myth, which is it's something that he created because when he found something after many many failures in in working through astrological uh, astrological statistics that had to do with things like the zodiac houses aspects, he spent years doing that as a young man, probably a lot of it even before he he entered the Sorbonne. And uh, once he had found something, he realized he was in an odd position because scientists at that time, and certainly today, were reluctant to get involved in a simple thing like taking an experiment that he had run and then rerunning it to test and see whether or not he was doing his work correctly or whether he was making things up. So... He took on a kind of uh, skeptic attitude about everything. He wrote articles and even probably a book or two that made fun of a, of traditional Western astrology. And uh, he probably continued this up until the the early 1970s when he wrote a book called Cosmic Influences on Human Behavior, at which time in the preface to the book. He wrote uh, a little essay called Confessions, Confession in the Form of a Prologue, in which he outlined what he had really done and where his interest had come from, that he had been interested in astrology from an early age, and that at one point, essentially in order to answer skeptical people, he set about collecting data, which was you could do in France. And uh, learning statistics, however painfully at that point, and uh, until finally one day he was caught by a teacher working on a treatise 
<laughs> on astrology in class. And the teacher essentially said to him, well, you know, Gokulan, you're not going to turn out as much of anything, <laughs> obviously, because of your interest. Right. At which point he decided to become an educated man, learn statistics, and follow the path where it led. Right. And if I understand, so it seems like his thinking went through different stages and yes. that he started out in basically in high school, basically, as somebody that was interested in astrology. He learned whatever the standard traditional astrology was at that point in the 19, yes. 1940s. And, um, but then, you know, had some of that early criticism at the age of 17 of, of somebody saying he wasn't going to turn out to, to be anything and decided to go to. Um, college and get some serious training in psychology and statistics. And it was in college that he started running statistical tests of astrology and building a large database of char of time charts to work with, essentially, right? Yes. The, the date that he marks as the beginning of his serious work was 1949. And by, I think, 1950, within a year or a year and a half, he had found something that was worth pursuing. And that determined essentially the course of the rest of his life. Right. Okay. So, and he went to, he actually went to and graduated from the Sorbonne, which is like a, an actually prestigious um, sort of college in mm -hmm. France, right? Yes. Well, that's also where he met Francoise, who became sure. his wife later on. Sure. So he meets his future wife there. He's already in the midst of doing these studies and at some point um so so part of the studies or the background behind the studies is that birth times are both recorded in France because it not necessarily it's not in every country every country around the world doesn't necessarily record birth okay. times but France due to actually kind of a funny historical thing i think it was actually due to napoleon yeah. does record birth times and not only are they recorded but they're also a matter of public record right yes yes so, so, or they could... were at at some point. I think he burned them down, and they they sort of started restricting things. But yes, at the time okay. he was working, they were okay. So he could go into like a, a sort of public repository, and he could gather up birth times and birth records, and that's exactly what he did in order to start building this database. Yes. And eventually, yes. he was able to collect and create a database of over one hundred thousand timed. Uh, birth records and timed birth charts. Yes. Okay. So as a result of that, um, he starting first, but then eventually his wife, who became a collaborator, uh, ran the first large-scale statist statistical studies with large sample sizes. And initially, they just collected data in France, but eventually they started going to other European countries in order to collect birth data from um, other places as well, right? Yes, other European countries, Belgium, Italy, uh, Germany, there might be one more in there. Some some of his data even eventually comes from Scotland, which oddly enough has a birth record tradition that was borrowed from Napoleon. <laughs> so at some point in his work, he, he actually picked up some, some data in Scotland. Very late in his career, he picked up uh, a smaller amount of data in the U.S., mostly right, concerned with the that Mars effect thing. Okay, because there's some states in the U.S. where birth data is open or publicly available like California, but most states are closed? 
Well, yeah, but this was 40 years ago, and things were a little more open then before people started doing things like stealing birth certificates and, you know, creating false IDs from them and so on. Okay, got it. So, um, yeah, so he collected the data from other European countries. His wife's fluency in other languages, Francois' fluency in other languages came in handy when they were going to some of these other countries and trying to collect the birth yeah, data, oh, yes. I think. Yeah, oh, yeah, She because she was Swiss. She was from Switzerland. And, uh, yeah, multilingual. She she would have had to speak at least French, German, and Italian, and that would that was plenty right there. Sure. Okay. So um, they ran different statistical tests on the data, and they published a number of books with the results. Uh, but his first book, which was titled um, The Influence of the Stars, was published in 1955, right? Yes. Okay. And, and it's quite a read. <laughs> in what sense? Um, at, he, actually, he had a very powerful, precise mind. And a lot of it does, does not... It, well, it comes through in his, his popular books in English uh, later on in his life. But there he was framing the... Um, he was framing his life's work. And he explained exactly how and why he was going to continue collecting data and how he was going to process it and so on, and the reasons for making various choices. Um, but it is. It's, it's, it's powerful stuff, and it's too bad that it's not, it's not widely available. Right. One of the things that I found interesting when I was just reviewing and, and reacquainting myself with a lot of this over the past few weeks that, that I found interesting is that a lot of his core findings, or at least his most important one, which was the correlation between um, certain planets at the moment of birth and uh, certain professions, if people would become eminent within certain career fields, that that finding is already there in his very first book uh, that early in his life, starting in, in 1955. He had already established that. Yes, yes. And and he explained he explained in that book and then later in a a sort of synopsis of that work and and his second work that was published in 1988, I think it's called Written in the Stars, um, that the reason for the data he chose, eminent people in specific professions, is that those professions were what he called the great poles of attraction for the mind, the arts, uh, government, uh, the military, and so on, as opposed to, say, going out and looking for people who were street sweepers or clerks in banks or something like that. He said these were the things that people with some some vision of being a success in life would would be gravitating toward. So that's why he chose those particular professions. Sure. And I think um, it said that the, the first study he did when he first found the effect was of scientists, where he gathered like a birth data for a few hundred eminent scientists and found that Saturn was more commonly prominent in the chart by either rising just above the ascendant or in the sector of the chart just above what astrologers call the ascendant and uh, following just after the degree of the meridian midheaven or culmination um, yes. That there was a statistically 
higher chance of eminent scientists having Saturn just after the ascendant or just after the midheaven. And that was the first time that he sort of discovered that, which became part of his core sort of findings when he eventually started finding that with other professions and other planets. Yes. The the first one was actually physicians, but he followed, the scientists followed very quickly. And and, and in both cases, uh, yes, Saturn initially, and then he started focusing and the, the, I, I actually, I don't have, yeah, actually, I can tell you in a minute here. The, uh, both the doctors and the scientists had Mars and Saturn prominent okay. eventually. At first, the first one was the Saturn and the doctors, and that was what convinced him that he had something there that he should follow. Right. And so one of the things, and this is circles back to something we were talking about earlier, but what's interesting at this stage then in his thinking when he starts discovering this stuff in college and running these large-scale statistical studies is that he was widely read in astrology up to that point. So he knew what the astrological yeah. tradition was yeah. and yeah. what results he should be expected to find based on what astrologers had thought for hundreds of years or what they had written in their manuals. But then he started coming up with results that were in sometimes like confirming some small piece of astrology, but oftentimes it was disconfirming or he couldn't find a statistical um, significance to other large swaths of the astrological tradition. And this is the point where he becomes, on the one hand, almost kind of like a, a skeptic of astrology in some sense because he couldn't validate large parts of the astrological tradition. And so he he tended to almost be dismissive of it in some sense while focusing on the results that he could find. Yes. Yes. I mean, he I, I it's hard to tell for sure, but he he may have been in the skeptical mold probably before he entered college because I I I believe and the timing is, is not really precise, but he actually did some of these um things like testing astro- astrological aphorisms while he was still uh, in, in before he entered college. And that's the kind of thing. In other words, the teacher that he had that conversation with, who said he wasn't going to amount to much, mm-hmm. uh, he had already begun to have his doubts at that point because the simple tests are of signs and and uh, aspects and transits and and things like that, and so those those were fairly easy to do, fairly straightforward. And it was only after after he entered college, and and also with the the uh, backing of Francoise, who if you read that one uh, that uh, confession in the form of a prologue, he is uh, she was his support at that point. He was doubtful. Should I keep doing this? What should I do? Have I found something worthy? How should I handle it? And she told him, she says, publish. People will read it. They will criticize you. And then you'll find out whether you've actually got something, Hmm. which is essentially what he did. Sure. Um, So what's interesting, because this then set up the mold for a large part of the rest of his life, which is that while he did 
find some statistically significant correlations, or while he at least thought he did, that he published at that point, they were often or sometimes not in alignment with, with what the astrological tradition said, so that this sometimes caused tensions with both the astrological and the scientific communities, where the astrologers were sometimes, well, on the one hand, they wanted to embrace his conclusions that perhaps he had somehow demonstrated that there was something to astrology statistically or in a scientific context, the fact that he was otherwise saying that there wasn't for large parts of the astrological tradition. Like he said, he couldn't find anything with the zodiac. He couldn't find any statistical correlations with the outer planets or with the sun or Mercury. Um, yeah. and, and even his results that were tied into the ascendant in midheaven, uh, which is theoretically or loosely tied in with the concept of the 12 houses, otherwise did not stack up well with the tradition up to that point and what it thought about the 12 houses because the plus zones were on the wrong side of the the angular houses. They were on the cadent side of the angular houses, which the astrological tradition said should be less active rather than more active. Yes, because the, the, the primary um the the two primary what he called his his Gokulan zones or sectors were roughly equivalent with in his early research were roughly equivalent with the astrological twelfth and ninth houses, Placidus. And uh, these are not the places when you read textbooks that tell you you should search for career success. <laughs> right. They, they go everywhere else. So sure. uh, one sidebar on that, which I've run into the whole time I've been uh, sort of becoming the Gokulan person, mm -hmm. is that it's often that I'll run into in a conference, I'll run into somebody comes running up and saying, I know why they're in the wrong place. And then they explain to me <laughs> why all these things are in the wrong houses. And uh, it's always something a little bit esoteric and, okay. you know, involving solar arcs and things like that. Yeah. But it made we'll, it hard to accept. Sure. And we'll, we'll, we can unpack more of that later uh, once we get specifically, especially into the Mars effect and the controversy mm -hmm. surrounding that where it became the most prominent. But basically, he was he became kind of an outsider then with astrologers on some level who were uncomfortable with him rejecting just yes. huge parts of the the established tradition but then he also yeah. ha started having problems with the scientific and skeptical communities because he seemed to be confirming that there was something or there was anything to astrology that there was some sort of correlation between the planets at the moment of a person's birth and what would happen later in their life for some re for some reason and that that mm -hmm sort of made him not sort of persona non grata in some sense in the scientific and and skeptical communities. Well it didn't it didn't because there were there were certainly a few people scientists or statisticians who looked at his work and uh, uh, at least one of them said jocularly he said uh, he says well if this is right statistics must be wrong. <laughs> And right. On on the other hand, there were some other people who said, uh, "If this is right, your statistics must be wrong. You're not doing your work correctly." But there were some fair-minded people. Few. Sure, but that and that'll become a major theme that we'll talk about a lot later, which is the interesting responses that many of the skeptics and the scientists who attempted to replicate his text and sometimes much to their surprise and dismay did 
how they re- responded to that yeah. and how they dealt with it led to some weird uh, and not very like great <laughs> highlights in like the history of science. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah. So we'll we'll get to that later. But it just in terms of setting the stage, that sort of gives you some idea of you know he he published his first book in 1955, and he published at least a dozen or like two dozen books, depending on how you qualify that. But a dozen would it be about a dozen like standard books as well as a bunch of other articles and and data collection books? I've never actually made a count, and I, I'm sure I actually have a stack of his stuff sitting here, and it's it's not a complete collection. Kind of hard to tell sometimes because many times his his uh, books in English were published in England first under different titles. But yeah, maybe maybe a dozen, uh, uh, either popular popularized books or books written on a semi technical level, but in pop in clear language and uh yeah and, and the the data volumes like maybe two dozen okay um and towards the end of his life he advocated a new approach to astrology that he called neo-astrology where he proposed creating a new tradition a new astrological tradition based only on that which had statistical evidence and to sort of reject or just remove from practice anything that couldn't be validated statistically. Uh, so basically like rebuilding astrology from the ground up empirically and scientifically, essentially. And that was the, the title of his last book that came out in 1991, which was uh, Neo-Astrology, A Copernican yeah. Revolution. Yes. So, And that's that was a unique approach because suddenly he was saying that we needed to start with a clean slate, we needed to start over again because there was too many built-up astrological traditions and ideas that he wasn't able to validate um, statistically, and that if you couldn't validate st- something statistically, then essentially you shouldn't be using it. Was was sort of the conclusion that he came to? Yeah, yes, but I I think he had actually come to that conclusion many years before. That's probably the place in which he stated it the most clearly, but then it's the last book that he wrote. And he was right. at that point, he was he was in a way trying to wrap things up. He was trying to say, where are we and where should we go from here? I don't particularly agree with him. Uh, I mean, I do to some extent, but I, it, it's, it's not possible to come against a... Uh, a, a the kind of tradition that astrology as a practice has around the world where you have 20 dozen traditions and um they involving different kinds of calculations and so on that's that's it's a pretty tall order to just come up against where we say well you, know, you ought to drop all these planets and do this and but i understand why he said it let's put it that sure way. Yeah, and I don't necessarily agree either, but it's still interesting to sort of explore his thinking and where he was coming from with that as representing sort of an extreme version of an approach that you could take and that somebody with a more scientifically minded mind would would probably want to take or could take on some level in saying that you shouldn't be that that we should rebuild astrology just based on things that we can validate under his premise that that his results were accurate sort of to begin with. Yeah. Yes, in fact, well, actually, I I tried something like that. I wrote a series of 
48 articles in American Astrology from 1992 to 1996, in which all of the all of the birth data was presented as Gokulan sector charts with only the so-called Gokulan planets, Moon, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. And I tried various things out, and uh, I, I, I don't know. He tried the same thing, and he was he was not very successful for technical reasons I won't even try to go into here, but it's worth looking at it that way as long as you keep your vision ready, keep yourself ready to look at other things as well. Sure. Okay, so getting into like the core of his, his findings or the core of his results then, that's probably a good transition point. Um, his most notable studies showed planets following angles correlating with vocation. And this is something we already talked about a little bit, but the most famous one, even though we said at the beginning that the first time that he started noticing that was with physicians and with, with, with doctors basically and with scientists, um, the most famous and controversial of these was the correlation between Mars and eminent athletes. And yeah. um, he also found correlations with other planets and professions. So there's, there's a number of, number of different of these that we'll get into. And this is important because basically, if at all accurate, like if this wasn't in any way statistically accurate or significant, then it would validate from a scientific and statistical standpoint, part of the basic premise of natal astrology which is that the positions of the planets at the time of a person's birth are indicative of some part of their life that will follow. Yes. And that just in and of itself, it, just the idea that that could be statistically validated in any way would then you know, give some scientific evidence for astrology, basically. Yes, yes. And which okay. that's the reason it was accepted by astrologers who at the same time held his work at arm's length because they didn't know what to do with it. Right. So astrologers didn't know, how to didn't know deal what to, with it. to do with it and scientists and skeptics were understandably also uh, sort of aghast with it because it seemed to be lending credence to that there was anything to astrology when just yeah. from a objective standpoint I think most people can agree there shouldn't you wouldn't normally think or or we can understand why we wouldn't normally think that there should be any correlation between the alignment of the planets at the moment a person is born and, and anything about their future or their character. But for some reason, he was finding some statistical results that indicated that there yes. very well may be. Yes. Okay. So, so, so other groups tried to replicate, replicate some of his tests, especially the Mars tests, and this became known as the Mars effect controversy. So let's get into talking about that specific controversy because that became the most notable one that probably had the most ink spilt over it. And to introduce the, the basis of that, his Mars study was that he found that Mars, uh, when a person was born with Mars either just above, the, just following the ascendant upwards in the diurnal rotation, so on the side of the 12th house just after the ascendant, or when it was just after the midheaven on the ninth house side, roughly just generally speaking, that Mars following the angles at the moment of birth correlated more often statistically with eminent athletes more than it should by chance. Yeah. Um, and that it wasn't just one of the weird things that was also very early on in his findings is that it wasn't just athletes in general, but it was eminent athletes or people that would become eminent in their, their chosen athletic field, right? Yes. 
So what's the deal with that? Because that's a that's a big um, point of contention, or that that's an important sort of distinction between saying like anybody born with you know Mars in these sectors will become an athlete versus saying that they will become eminent in that field, and that's something that shows up in all of his other studies as well, right? It's not just about having a planet in a specific part of the chart and then having a greater likelihood of going into that career field, but it's actually just showing up in the charts of people that are eminent within that field? It, it seems so, but I'm not sure that I... I don't think it's as much of a problem as even Gokulan thought it was, because in order to, for example, study sports champions, you have to contrast them with somebody. You can't just you know, here here are some sports champions and let's look at them. You have to have some kind of difference between either sports or the level of success, or you would have to differentiate them from ordinary people or from other professions. And the the simplest, most straightforward choice is to take the people who have the greatest success and compare them with people who have had relatively little success the people who showed up for uh, sh- showed up for the uh, the whatever sport it was showed up for the games uh did their work and went home and the other ones who technically i've been on technically speaking hit the home runs uh jumped the highest hurdles or whatever you have to have something to compare with, and there was a, I, I've gone back and forth about this, but I have looked at some of these things. It's in some of his, actually, or tells later studies of Gokulan, where he was able to quantify this comparison. There's some reason to believe in looking at it that. Uh, there are it's possible that this is also true for ordinary people but the it's hard to explain why that is i could maybe we could get into that later yeah i mean i don't cuz i want to be careful to outline what he thought and what the research was yes. especially in his lifetime and what yeah. his arguments were versus some of the things that happened later that we'll definitely get into towards the end Yes. Um, but one of the points I should have clarified, one of the things I thought was interesting and unique is that he divided the chart into, in, in order to plot and show the sort of statistical results, he divided it into 36 sectors starting with the ascendant. And I was always curious why he ended up with 36 sectors and if he was deliberately, because that's also the number of for example, decans, and if he was deliberately patterning it after the decans for some reason, or if he chose 36 for some other reason. Do you know the answer to that? It's purely arithmetic. That's all it is. Okay. In, or, in, order, to, in order to examine the data, he used sectors of varying sizes depending on the size of the sample. Hmm. And also early in his in his research, he was doing this because he was he was trying to find out where the pattern extended, like as you pointed out earlier. It actually begins below the ascendant and before the midheaven and then carries on afterward. He wanted to be able to measure that and then come to some final conclusion. 
And the 36 sectors work with most of his samples and uh, were, uh, he probably began using that sometime in the 60s or the early 70s. And when others came along and began to seriously look at his work, they always used the, the 36. Okay. So, I mean, that's really important because to try to describe for just our audio listeners, um, his his data is sometimes presented in different ways. And the most common one I've seen are the ones that ended up on like his book covers and stuff where it's more of almost like a, like a line graph that's drawn yeah. around a chart. Yeah. So, for example, on the the cover of his book, Cosmic Influences on Human Behavior, it's like you see this little circle, and then it shows the peaks uh, right just above the ascendant and just after the midheaven. And it's it's sort of written like that as more of like a line peaks. But you sent me another diagram today that you have in an article – that I thought was interesting because it shows it more within the context of those 36 decans. Let me see if I can share that really quickly for the people watching the video version of this. And for those watching just the audio version, let me just describe it. But imagine you have a chart that has the ascendant, and then you divide it starting with the ascendant into 36 10-degree segments, um, starting at the ascendant, but then moving upwards, it actually moves uh, sort of clockwise in the order of the diurnal rotation where the sun rises in the morning and then it moves upwards and culminates in the middle of the day and then eventually it sets in the evening. Yeah. So if you if you set it like that and you divide the, let's say, the diurnal rotation or, or what astrologers associate with the houses into these 36, 10-degree segments, the the so-called plus zones, which are the zones where if a planet falls in in that sector of the chart, it tends to coincide with a greater tendency, according to Gokulin, of a person uh, being eminent in a specific career field. It actually starts with the the first deacon just below the ascendant. So on the first house side, the first ten degrees below the ascendant yes. are a plus zone, but then the rest of the plus zone for that sector is actually the three deacons. Uh, upwards above the ascendant on the twelfth house side, right? Yes. Okay, and then the next sector starts uh, with the first deacon on the left side of the quadrant midheaven, so the first ten degrees, let's say roughly, before the degree of the MC. But then the the rest of the sector, the greater part of it, actually follows in the next three decans or the next thirty degrees following the MC on the ninth house or the cadence side. Yes. And that's the other major sector? Yes. Okay. And the effect supposedly also follows for the seventh house and the uh, fourth house or the IC, but uh, statistically it's much lower or it's, uh, it's less- It's weaker, pro- yes. It's much weaker than the, the, the midheaven and the ascendant? Yes. Okay. Got it. So, um, so that's just setting up the visuals. And in terms of- um, Mars and the eminence factor. So what he found was that Mars in those sectors, especially around the ascendant and midheaven, showed up in the charts of eminent athletes more more commonly than it should, according to just chance. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the early results that he presented in his first book, in his first books. And 
he published these works and then he tried to encourage other scientists to test his results and replicate it because that's part of what you're supposed to do in science is you're supposed to to do a test and then you're supposed to publish it and and see if others can replicate it and if it can be replicated then that's supposed to confirm or help to confirm the results right yes that's exactly right so he encouraged other scientists to rep, try to replicate his results but there was it seemed like initially there was some there was a lot of uh, foot dragging and there was a lot of delays and and scienti- other scientists were not quick to attempt to try to replicate his studies but eventually um over the course of his life eventually there were three separate skeptical groups that did uh run tests on the mars effect specifically to see if it was true that mars in those sectors at birth coincided with a greater amount of eminent athletes and what ended up happening is that some of the scientific groups initially actually did replicate Gokland's results, much to their surprise and, and somewhat dismay, right? Yes. Uh, actually, the first one that he approached, the Mars effect, well, he, he issued that as kind of a challenge to, to skeptics. Because as I said, mm. there were a few fair-minded people who had looked at his work and thought there was merit to it. The first one that he wrote a letter to and said, would you please, would you like to look at my data? It was a committee that was a, a skeptic committee the tested claims of the paranormal. And uh, the letter he got back said, uh, well, we've studied this subject a priori, and uh, we already know that it's false. So we don't want to look at your work. (laughs) Okay. Eventually, those people came back and did it. So this was uh, a a Belgian skeptic group that eventually... That was the Belgian skeptic group, yes. Okay, and initially they tested it, but then it it took like forever for them to actually publish one of the things in, in his last book, um, Neo Astrology. He does a pretty good job of writing a synopsis, a very brief and concise synopsis of his career and some of the, the back and forth that he had yeah, with some of yeah. these groups. And he complains about them taking forever or really dragging their heels to even publish the results once they had do- once they had done the tests. And eventually in 1968 they did publish the results, which um, confirmed that they seemed to have replicated his results, but that said that they still dismissed it as being saying that it must have been some sort of error of some sort that they couldn't identify or couldn't articulate. Yeah, well, actually, this the this, the initial study was done in 1968, and then and it wasn't forever; it was only eight years. Eight years. <laughs> it, okay. It took them eight years to publish it, and that was only because of pressure from the next skeptic group in line, uh, which is a long story. I can tell some of it if you want at this point. Sure, yeah, just briefly. Yeah, okay. They they, they had, as you said, they, they had done internal tests of a normal sort that you would do if you think something really needed to be worked further, and uh, they could not find anything wrong with it, so they decided that well, since there must be something wrong with it, <laughs> we're just going to leave it on ice. But uh, in 1975, I think, when the famous there was a famous episode when a magazine called The Humanist issued a challenge to astrology and had all these scientists signing on to say it was bunkum and so on. Well, it wasn't even got, a challenge. It was it was 
they there's a condemnation Right. A, a, a group of scientists felt that astrology was becoming too popular in mainstream culture because it yes. was at that point from like the 1960, late 1960s oh, yeah. forward. And some of these scientists and skeptics got alarmed by it and decided to gather together a large, they, they circulated like a, like a memo or something to get signatures from a hundred something scientists and Nobel Prize winners saying that there was no yeah. scientific validity to astrology. Yeah, yeah. But but almost immediately they got into trouble because in the magazine where that was published, they had a couple of articles, one of which pretty much condemned uh, Gokulan's work as phony, fake, not very good. And and the, the fellow who did it was a su- supposedly a science writer. He was not very good. He didn't know what he was talking about. So the Gokulans, Michel and Francois at that point, wrote a, an article to answer that and point out where he was wrong. And this then began uh, the, the the humanist group, which by that time had become the Committee for this uh, Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, PSYCHOP, had been formed around this whole thing. And they began their own tests, their own procedures to see what they could do. Right. Because I could see from Gokland's perspective that he had published his initial findings back in 1955. He'd been trying to get other groups to verify them and to replicate his studies. He was eventually able to get the Belgian skeptic group to do so, and they replicated it. Um, But then you have this manifesto coming out in 1975 that says there's no scientific validity whatsoever to astrology, and there's no studies that have ever been done that have confirmed any part of it. And I'm sure Gokulin at that point was saying, hey, what about this study, all this data that I've been publishing over the past two two decades? And so that then, and his responses to that, um, then motivate a second skeptical group that had just formed in, in the United States to do a second study, which was that published in 1977, or was it just done in 1977. And I'm not I'm not clear on that at the moment, but it it actually consisted of two different uh, two different tests. The first of which required the Gokulans to go out and gather new data, which they took a sample. The skeptics said they said here's a here's a group of your own athletes. And you've got the birth data and you've got the Mars. So now go to the places where these people were born and find everyone born on that same day as each of these people. And that will show right away whether or not what you're saying is possible. Okay. He won the test. They they won the test after like, I don't know how long it took them to gather the data. By won the test, you mean that they did again replicate the results? Yes, or the results the, came the back as statistically were, significant. People who were born on the same day who were not super athletes did not have Mars more or less uh, uh, in those sectors than the athletes did. The athletes had more Mars than the people born in the same towns on the same day. Okay. And the answer to that, without going into all the technical jargon, was that the the report that Psychop wrote that the two people who wrote the wrote the article on that uh, 
it monkeyed with the statistics, and it did things that were uh, somebody who was in a first semester statistics course would not do in order to prove that what what the Gokulans had already shown to be true was not true. So then Which, they did their own. So the Gokulans did that, but then Psychop did their own study or own analysis of that. Yes. And, and that that one test, that first test led to the second one, which was they said, okay, we're now going to go out and gather our own sports data for U.S. sports people and see what happens. Okay. And so that study was published, but then that created a lot of controversy, both in responses from Gokulin, who said that they didn't do a good job and that they violated some basic sort of like scientific tenets in in how they approached that, but also created a lot of controversy because even skeptics within that organization, within the organization itself, ended up writing articles complaining about the procedures that they used being flawed and, and that bias from the skeptics was being introduced and unduly influencing the results or, or something to that effect. Well, the, 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 the basic proposition, which was even by the time the article appeared in, in the Psychop magazine, it was they had to put footnotes on it explaining that they had not cheated on, <laughs> on the data that they collected, that everything was okay, everything was copacetic. But because the problem with it was this. Gokulan showed that Mars in these sectors was there more often than it should be in the case of champion athletes. And what Psychop showed was that it was significantly less in those sectors for those champion athletes that they used in their sample. So immediately, even the fellow who did, the astronomer who did the calculations for Psychop to figure out the sectors and where the Mars was, he was very suspicious. And he wrote an expose about the whole thing. Right. So this Rob, is the this, this is Dennis the, Dennis Rollins, who was one of the the founders or early leaders in Psychop, wrote an article titled Star Baby in nineteen eighty one, which was like an expose of yeah. not just um the the issues surrounding how the skeptic group had conducted the test, but he also, if I remember it correctly, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, he also alleged that there had been a cover-up because he said that initially they had actually confirmed Gokulin's results, but then they kept it under wraps for a while because they were so convinced that astrology couldn't be valid that they thought that they must have made a mistake in order to validate the results and that they didn't actually publish or release anything until they could figure out how to make it look like there wasn't an effect or how they could figure out what their mistake was. And his criticism was that eventually that there really was, that he thought Rollins, the skeptic, thought that Gokulin had made errors that would have made the Gokulin, the Mars effect disappear, but that the skeptic group in their concern about um, covering up the initial results that seemed to be positive made a, a, an error in like doing something essentially unscientific by covering it up instead of just doing more studies in order to figure out what the underlying problem was or something like that? Well, the Rollins actually thought that the Gokulans were, were that their work, he, he never bought the Mars effect. He was a skeptic. Mm-hmm. And 
absent anything that would explain what it was or what you know what physical thing or astronomical thing there was that was doing this, he wouldn't accept it. But he did say that they had done their statistics correctly. What happened with the internal investigation, the the, the internals of this uh, of the psychop episode, was that it was entirely run by the head of the organization, Paul Kurtz. Now, Paul Kurtz was not able, he, you know, he had to hire Rollins to do the calculations, the astronomical calculations to locate the Mars positions. But at one point, after the first, he did it in three, three batches. And after the first batch came in, and there was the Mars effect. So it was so replicated. Then, They'd replicated that the effect was still there. They seemed to be on their way to it. The sample at that point wasn't quite large enough, so they would have to get more. And Kurtz asked whether or not he could have an advanced peak at the next batch, which he shouldn't have been asking for. It was the wrong thing to do. So Rollins went along with that reluctantly. And what happened was there were in the end there were three samples. And they went downhill. Bang, bang, bang. Each sample, each succeeding sample was smaller than the next until finally, as I said, the result was that it was a negative Mars effect in a sense, which was, <laughs> it was uh, what can I say? So that's important because the chance distribution should have been like 50-50, but instead it was going too far in the opposite direction yes, so that it indicated exactly. that something, something was off. Oh yes, it was something was so obviously off. As I said, when they when they published on it, they had to explain why it was really okay, and they really hadn't done anything wrong. And Rollins even defended Paul Kurtz at the time. He says it's what I call the dumb defense. He said, "Well, here's the thing: Kurtz couldn't have monkeyed with the sample, even though he was doing something he wasn't supposed to do." Because he didn't know how to calculate, do the calculations. But in their own article, in a footnote, they pointed out that the sectors at that, which at that time they were using the 12, were roughly equivalent with Placidus houses. And this was a, this was the era when there had begun to be astrological calculation services. For a couple of dollars, you could buy a chart. You didn't have to be smart. All you had to do was write a check, which at certain points in the controversy that followed was pointed out very clear. In fact, I, I wrote a long letter to Paul Kurtz about this. I'm not going to go into all the details, in which I explained to him, you don't have any defense here because of what I just said. You could go and pay somebody a couple of bucks and calculate all this stuff and then throw things out as you needed to throw them out. But anyway, how is that? That's, I'm trying to understand how that's relevant because you're saying because Rollins, Dennis Rollins, was an astronomer, and so he was doing all the calculations to make the charts, basically, right? He was doing them mathematically. He was doing them astronomically and mathematically. But in order to do a Mars effect uh, uh, study, you could just use charts with Placidus houses and get roughly the same result as Gokulan. But instead, what you got was something less than that. Okay, so um, this 
created a lot of controversy within the skeptical organization and within, obviously, with Gokulin himself, who's objecting to the results and the methodology. Rollins writes this big expose in 1981, and he publicly leaves the organization um, because of how they handled it. And there's a lot of sort of controversy and back and forth, basically, over the next few years, right? Oh, yes. The controversy continued until at least, um, well, in 1981, in fact, when, when, when Rollins left, other people left, two of the, there were four people involved in the Mars effect, uh, uh, in what Psychop did with the Mars effect. One was Rollins. Another one is a, a, a Harvard professor, last name of Zellin. Another was uh, a, an astronomer, George A. Bell. And the other one was Paul Kurtz. And Zellin and Abel wrote a public apology to Gokulan. They said, we had not behaved properly scientifically. Now, they were talking about the test as a whole. They had nothing to do with the thing that Kurtz ran. So between four people who ran the test, they all left. One wrote an expose. Two wrote a public apology to the Gokulans. And then you were left with Paul Kurtz, who to his dying day would tell you that the Mars effect was bunkum. Sure. Um, and I thought in Rollins's sort of expose of like the insider, his insider view of all of this, it seemed like um, James Randi was also involved in the test or in the skeptical organization as well at the time. Yeah, but he didn't really have anything to do with it. He's, he's a trickster. He's a magician. So, sure. Uh, you mean he's not a, like a trained scientist is what you mean? Not at all. Not in any way is he a trained scientist. He's sure. the guy with a big mouth. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, it's a relevant criticism in terms of, and that's one of the interesting things about the skeptical movement, at least in popular culture over the past few decades, is a lot of the major like celebrity skeptics are magic magicians who, because of their background yeah. in using like misdirection and other things like that, they think that that's what other all other paranormal fields must be doing is pulling some some sort of like sleight of hand in order to trick yes. or fool people and that becomes their main argument for what things like what astrologers are doing is that they're just uh tricking people or something like that yeah and that that's that's a, that's actually a reasonable position and there there were uh other people in in psychop who are magicians who, uh, unlike Randy, who's more or less just a debunker. This is what I meant by the mouth. Uh, nothing was ever true. As you know, he, as as long whatever he saw was always always fake, phony, whatever. But there were several people in there who were magicians, uh, either as a hobby or at some point as a profession, who were much much fairer minded. And uh, I, I can't at the moment. There's one fellow I'm trying to think of, but uh, who who went on to to leave Psychop, started a magazine called the Zetetic Scholar, which was about investigating the paranormal, not debunking it. And uh, he and in that little magazine, after all of this stuff was over, and Psychop, I think, sort of brushed it out of the way and didn't say a whole lot of it after this whole thing happened. Uh, uh, there were other places like this, like this Zetetic Scholar and then 
uh, a place uh, or uh, something called the Journal of Scientific Exploration that began publishing some real work on this as opposed to stuff that was supposed to debunk. Sure, right, because that became one of the critiques. And I think one of the results of the Mars Effect controversy and Psychops involvement in it is that they didn't continue doing tests like this directly themselves oh, after no. this era. <laughs> That's right. Uh, they, they, they made a, a pact with each other and said, we're not going to do this anymore. Let other people do the tests. We'll publish the results. Sure. So um, eventually part of the results were from this were that, that Gokulin himself was accused of introducing bias into the results uh, partially due to data selection. And also there were some issues surrounding some of his responses, it seemed like, focused on issues and arguments surrounding factors like eminence be being a key um, component in, in working the data set. Uh, which partially has to do with some questions surrounding like what constitutes eminence and things like that. In fact, most of the reasonable controversy during the whole run of the skeptics, which involved, eventually involved three different organizations, was squabbling over what constituted eminence. Simple example, when Kurtz was doing the sampling, this sampling that people saw in the open, in one of the volumes, he he was choosing not sports champions, but everybody in the place, including coaches and things like that. He said, well, you know, they're all they're in the they're in the volume here. They must be famous. So th right. and these were these were things that were arguable in a reasonable fashion, and it became very detracting. Yeah, so I mean cuz that is a that is a good question or that's a reasonable objection what constitutes eminence. Like so for example, maybe eminence would be somebody that's won like a uh, let's say a swimmer who's won like a gold medal, like a gold medal in the Olympics for swimming. That would right. be somebody that would constant we would view as that's like an objective criteria for eminence, let's say. Yes, that's that those are the kinds of of criteria that that uh, uh, Michelle chose only for each sport. There have to be different criteria. You know, some people are, you know, win gold medals in the Olympics. Somebody might else might not be an Olympic sport. So you have to choose how you what you, what what kind of criteria there are for each sport. So in that sense, sports was unfortunate. It was fortunate because sports. Champions have a short life, short career life. So you were able to always have a supply of data coming along to conduct new tests on. But yes, the, the criteria were important and arguable. Sure. So I could see how, on the one hand, there could be problems with if somebody just completely disregards that and just set, and starts including birth data from like anybody who's sort of tangentially related to some specific sport and throwing their data that that could mess up the whole sample. But then I could also see some of the objections to um, saying that perhaps Gokulin's criteria for determining evidence, that that could be hard to establish and that there could be some gray areas sometimes when it sure. comes to what constitutes eminence versus non-eminence, let's say yeah. in a specific uh, sport. Yes, definitely. Sure. Okay. 
So, and that becomes a subject of controversy that sort of became ongoing even after Gokulin's life in terms of trying to understand his results and if they were valid or not. And a lot of it ended up focusing on that. Yeah. So that's the Mars effect controversy basically in a nutshell. And that was actually the focus of you guys, you documented in your 1996 book, The Tenacious Mars Effect. A large part of, part of it was focused on basically documenting that research and the subsequent controversies and attempts to replicate it, right? That, that, it, my part of the book, yes. The, the, the primary part of the book by, by Sweetbird Hertel was actually going over the evidence and doing so based on an objective way of assessing evidence without having to appeal to prizes in this sport or that sport. It's very simple, actually. And in fact, it's something that, that a couple of the, one of the, the last skeptic organization accidentally used on its own. But uh, it, it's very simple. It's called citation counts. You gather together, you go to a reference library, and you say, I need all the reference volumes you have listing people who are in sports. Suppose you end up with five, six, seven, eight, or whatever them. And then you go through and you gather all the names and then you cross compare them to see how many of these volumes each person was cited in. And uh, then you can apply that to the data that, that Coquelin had already collected. And it's a simple measure. Then it becomes a simple matter of measurement. Is very straightforward, and which is a reason that that you will hear people saying that it's a little bit overblown. But they say that that or tell by doing this saved the Mars effect. Well, he, in a sense, he did, but he also applied that, and this is unfortunate. We we have the we have the numbers that he gathered for the Mars effect, but he did it for all of the all of the professions, and that. That's unavailable at the moment. Okay. Um, well, that let's see. That then is actually a nice transition point into talking about the correlations between other planets and professions. But first, before we wrap up this section, there was a, a third group. So the first group that initially replicated Gokland's results but said there must be still problems with it was the Belgian skeptic group in, around 1968. The second was the American skeptic group around 1977, and then there was a third group that tested the results and published their findings, which is a French skeptic group in 1996, I believe, right? That's when they finally published their work, yes. But they, okay. like the Belgian group, they took years in order to do it, which is unfortunate because after having been bruised, have, you know, like Charlie Brown with a football twice— uh, uh, Michelle insisted uh, that there be a written protocol. What would be done, how they would determine eminence, uh, how long it would take, that there would be constant communication, so on. And what happened was they signed the protocol and I believe essentially Michelle never heard from them until several years later when they wrote to them and say, "Oh, we're we we just uh, we're now we're circulating all the the stuff that we gathered, and you know, here it is, 
And that that letter actually reached him in the wrong place. I don't know whether it was he was somewhere. He was probably in California working at uh, uh, Astro Computing Service, where he was they were helping with his research. And uh, it was, you know, it was the same kind of treatment that he had received before. They didn't actually fully publish their data until after he had died. Right. So he died in 1981, and they didn't actually end up publishing the results until 1996. So he never himself at least got a chance to respond to... He, to... he, did, he did, in fact, respond to them for, from, I believe, maybe it was 1990 when they... They sent the uh, you know, like the fall of 1990 when they sent him. They said, "Well, here it is," and uh, he did respond, and he was very critical of what they had done. And uh, and they squabbled back and forth, as usual, over what what was eminence in what sport, which was still continuing, even though Ertel had written his thing a few few years before that, offering them a third, a second way, so to speak. So there was some squabbling back and forth, and then they took advantage of the fact that when they published it in 1996, uh, he was dead, couldn't say anything anymore, and about, I'd say, a third of the book is them publishing this correspondence back and forth and saying, see what he's doing here? He's being selective. This his whole thing is like, look what he's doing here. That was just like essentially picking on a on a dead man and uh, saying bad things about him. Not always in a nice way either. So uh, I, I wrote a long review of the book at one point, and it's on my website, Planutos. Uh, Planutos. Planutos. P L A N E T O S. dot O R G. And the title and, of their book was uh, The Mars Effect. Yes, there you go. Uh, the Mars Effect, a French test of over 1,000 sports champions, published by the French Committee for the Study of Paranormal Phenomena. Yes, that's it. And, and, and it, uh, that essentially was negative. It, it said that there was no Mars Effect, that any effect was the result of bias on, on Gogolin's part, and, and that was it. And that was one of the last major studies published by a skeptical organization or a scientific organization, right? Yes. They they pretty much gave up after that. And in fact the the, the person who it, it turned out that the reason that the the CFEPP as they were called it, how how why they took so long was the organization was kind of falling apart. It wasn't well organized. Uh, people were leaving. Uh, the guy who was originally supposed to uh, oversee the test died, and so they were just mostly disorganized. And it was finished up by somebody in, in the Netherlands, who I don't think was actually a, a, even a member of the organization. So he just had to take things and put them together and draw his own conclusions. But the fact is that at that time, by that time, because of Ertel's work, he he could take, which he did, the two supposedly failed skeptic tests and subject them to his criteria, his citation counts, and show precisely that they did, in fact, show the Mars effect, even though they had been 
monkeyed with. The data sure. had been poorly sampled, let's put it that way. So Ertel had developed a better way for for um, removing bias from the eminence factor and ran the skeptical tests and claimed to have still been able to validate it when you ran that sort of control on the test? Yes. In fact, it, it's it's in that, the Tenacious Mars Effect book, and it was also published in, in several places, probably mostly in correlation, uh, the uh, AA's journal in England. So Correlation is a, a long-running for the past few decades. It's a journal that's published yeah. by the Astrological Association of Great Britain, which is specifically designed to publish papers and studies related to the scientific study of astrology. Yes, yes. And all of the work that uh, Ertel others did, their entire collection is online. You have to be a member to access it, but it's it's not a major expense to join the AA, and, and you will have access to all of that. Uh, another journal, which is entirely open to the public, the one I mentioned earlier, the Journal of Scientific Exploration, also published a great deal of his work. That is entire everything that they've done since they were founded around 1981 is available online, PDF form, and uh, indexed and everything. So uh, a lot of what Ertel did during the during the especially during the nineties, he, he he studied the Mars effect, he worked on the Mars effect and the other planetary effects from the mid eighties to about the early, some like the first five years, maybe twenty years, eighty six to ninety five. And after that he had other things he wanted to take care of that he'd been setting aside. But uh, during that time, a lot of what he published was was essentially cleanup, following up on these skeptic uh, skeptic uh, tests, and always with, in the same way that he did in that book, just demonstrating graphically and with numbers that uh, what had been done on the Mars effect was actually fairly consistent all the way through despite the fact that people were disagreeing over sampling eminence and in some places just being bad actors so sure. in other words and, it's all there and to mention since it ties together to those points before we move on uh just like a couple of weeks ago i just got in the mail the latest issue of the correlation journal which is volume 31 uh, number two, 2018, and it's actually dedicated to and is a compilation um, of for Ertel, who died just last year in 2017. So, um, and this actually contains a few articles, including uh, an article you wrote about your yes. your interactions with him. Yes, I, yes. Okay, so that's a good recent resource that people can take advantage of as well if they want to look into this. Um, so. Let's see. Before we move on, one last point. People should do a search for, I think it's really worthwhile, whether you're an astrologer or whether you're a skeptic of astrology, to read Rollins's 1981 um, article, Star oh, Baby, yes. which, which you can access online just because it's a really insightful behind-the-scenes look into that whole debacle with the second attempt, the second group's attempt to replicate Gokland's results and what happened when they 
thought at first that they accidentally had replicated the results and just some of the issues that go into potential bias if you're a group dedicated to debunking something or or actively proving things wrong versus doing sort of more neutral scientific testing, what some of the potentials are that go along with that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's worth reading, you know, regardless of what your, your background is. Oh, yes. Yes. And, he, okay. and he's, he's very much on point all the way through. Sure. Um, all right. So moving on from the Mars effect controversy, why did the Mars, Mars end up being the study that was replicated? That's one of my questions because he, from a very early stage, as we said, found that there were other correlations between planets and profession. So he found that there was a Jupiter correlation where if Jupiter was in the plus zone sectors, especially just above the ascendant or just to the right of the midheaven in, in a person's birth chart, that Jupiter tended to correlate more commonly with uh, people that were eminent actors, playwrights, politicians, military leaders, um, executives or top executives, and journalists. Uh, Saturn tended to correlate with scientists and physicians. Mars tended to correlate with physicians, military leaders, sports champions, and top executives. And the moon correlated with writers and politicians. While interestingly, he could not find any effect or any relevant profession that correlated statistically with the planets the Sun and Mercury, or with the other outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Right. So uh, why did, I mean, before we get into those, why did Mars end up being the study that everybody focused on? Was that just like an accident or chance that that ended up being the one that the replication studies focused on? Or was there like a specific reason that the first group tried to focus on the Mars study versus others? It, it, was, an entire, it was entirely on purpose and it was Gokulin's plan because uh, for one thing, it was, it was one of the stronger effects. It was very stable. And as I as I said previously, there was a larger and continuing supply of sports champions than there than for these other professions. So it was very easy to pose the question to I think the first time was nineteen fifty six, the one that said, Oh, we, we studied this a priori. Uh and it went from nineteen fifty six through nineteen ninety six, forty years. And there was never any question about there being enough data. Okay, that makes a lot of sense because, like, athletes will tend to peak much earlier in their life. Sure, people tend to be younger when they hit the high point of their athletic abilities, and there is also somewhat objectively measurable due to the nature of having like competitions or contests like the Olympics, where yeah. there's some sort of like objective judging factor. Yes, even even at the point where. Uh, he was forced to use individual criteria for individual sports. It still was something he had, even though it was argument over it, he was able to, people who actually looked at these arguments could assess them in a rational way. Let's put it that way. So up, sure. up until Ortel came up with the citation counts, even though they were squabbling, there was still a way for someone to look at it and try to understand it. Although I have to say that uh, people that I've talked to in the sciences who know about this kind of shy away from it because it's too hard to figure out in a way. It is too far out of their out of their specialty. 
for them to understand it. Too hard to figure out just trying to replicate or how you would replicate any of his results or trying well, just, to figure out just to understand it from a scientific point of view. When we when the book was being finished up, the Tenacious Mars Effect, we were looking for somebody to write an introduction. Mm-hmm. And uh we approached uh one astro there's an astronomer, well fairly well known astronomer and a skeptic as well, who was married to an astrologer. And uh, I pointed this out to Sweetbird, and he says, well, let's ask him. So we sent him the manuscript, and I talked to him about it, and he says, he says, well, you know, this could be right. It looks like it's well done and everything. He says, but it's just too hard for me to sit down and go through this and see it in a, something in a new light like this. It's just, it's, it, he says, I couldn't write an introduction because I can't be sure that I'm understanding it correctly and that I'm therefore judging it correctly. Sure. That makes sense because this is like a huge, this is a lifetime. This is Gokland's life work and he expended it in an extreme or not extreme, extensive amount of energy, even just in the initial phases of like data collection. Like data collection is something that's extremely time consuming uh, just to go out and actually collect all those different pieces of data and then in his early days, he would have been calculating all the charts by hand, although you alluded to the fact that that later in his life, as computers started becoming more common and there started being software companies or companies that you could go to like Astro Computing Services to get the charts calculated electronically, that that sped up the process. So he was taking advantage of some of those those early advancements in like technology to to accentuate or help speed up some of his research? Oh, uh, yeah. In fact, that's that was that was a large part of it. But by the time the I'm not sure when Astro Computing Astro Computing played a big part in in extending his research, but I'm not sure when they started. I had thought it was as late as 1977. It might have been much much earlier than that. So I'm I'm sort of digging around and trying to find the answer to it, but they took his entire uh, professional database for sure, but maybe the whole thing, and computerized it. And uh, Tom Shanks was, it was just two people, Neil Mickelson and Tom Shanks. Neil was the businessman, and Tom was the statistician. And he ran it through various ringers and looked at various questions that, that uh, the Gokulans had had up to that point and settled them. Uh, but only because they could just do all these massive calculations. And at one point, uh, other people started coming in and using the database and doing their own research, although none of that was really very successful. Sure. Um, But that at least, yeah, I could imagine it wouldn't have been until the 70s or especially the late 70s forward that that probably would have become available um, but I can also understand, just going back to the point you were made, making just before I said that, it just takes a huge amount of work to even just gather the data, let alone then run all the different statistical studies on it. I can understand how other people, you know, even if you think astrology is valid and you have motivation to want to validate it or, or try to demonstrate its validity by getting together all this data and then running the tests on it, that would take a lot of work even if you believed in it. And I can imagine that if you didn't think astrology was valid or if you assumed that the tests were going to come back negative, how it would seem like even more of 
like a waste of your time or something that you wouldn't be interested in doing to actually spend all of that time of like months or years running that data or crunching that data in order to demonstrate that the results were invalid. So I can imagine that even some of the skeptical groups, even though Gokulin himself was often expressing exasperation with them taking years and dragging their feet to do this stuff, I can imagine that a lot of different groups it would have been hard to, you know, motivate a group of researchers to like want to devote years oh, yeah. of their life to testing this stuff. Very certainly. To to give you an idea of the a small idea of the energy involved, the I think this was the last time I talked to Michelle on the phone, and it was in probably December of nineteen ninety. And uh at one point I mentioned that it was my birthday. And he says, uh so how old are you? And I said, 43. And he says, he sort of sighed and he says, says, you know, at that age, I could go out and I could play tennis all morning, come in at noon, have lunch, and then work until midnight. And when he said work, he meant sitting down with index cards and writing things and, you know, like all clerical work because... That was and that was what it took, on his part and and up to a certain point to Fran, on Francois's part, to get this kind of stuff done, and uh, I mean just imagine to being driven to, like not not have a vacation for years because your vacation was spent going over to Italy, or Belgium or someplace else, and gathering birth data, and then coming back and then processing it all by hand. Because his, I never saw it, but his laboratory, their laboratory in Paris, was nothing but cabinets full of index cards, and then birth documents. All of it processed by hand. Right. That was actually one of the questions I've been wondering wondering over the past few weeks is I don't even understand how he funded all of this research over the years or how he was able to even do all of this. Was it through like the proceeds of like publishing because he did publish all those books? I'm sure there's a, like some proceeds from that, but how did he otherwise fund this? I guess he had side jobs or he alludes to having side jobs when he was younger. Oh yeah, by the time he was finished at the Sorbonne, he he and Francois, I think they they worked in psychological clinics, and you know they had day jobs for a while. Uh, she was good at investing, apparently, uh, and he wrote I don't know how many books he wrote. And I'm sure those were the days when you could get an actual advance for writing a book, especially if you had a, a platform as he did, if people knew who you were and they had bought your books before. So there was a point at which those were probably bringing a lot of money, but for the rest of it, yeah. And and then at the point when ACS came into it, Astro Computing, uh, their time was just donated. This was this was Neil Mickelson. That was what he he had worked for IBM. He loved astrology. He knew how to do computing. He knew he had very for at that time he had very good very very good equipment. So. When that happened, it probably they moved a whole lot faster. Just let let's put it that way. But they were still doing things by hand because I still have some of the volumes that 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 he published 
uh, not the whole collection, but if you look at them, they're they're mimeographed or they're xeroxed, and then they're stapled together by hand. So nobody was. I mean, maybe he had money to hire assistants from time to time. A lot of this, they just did themselves. Sure. As just a labor of love or as part of his lifelong passion Absolutely. for investigation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So so back to this other correlations with planets. So even though the Mars effect became the thing that everybody focused on, his studies actually showed you know, these other planets um, correlating with other eminent people in specific vocations. Um, one of the things that though put him made astrologers feel sometimes uneasy is that he didn't find any correlations with the Sun or Mercury or with Uranus or Neptune or Pluto, right? Uh, which is kind of kind of interesting. Well, it it was interesting to him because I I I'm quite sure that when he came up with this, uh, when he first started getting results that looked astrological, he was maybe a little put out himself that. There was nothing for the sun. He, in fact, there are times in some of his books when he'll, at least for the sun, he'll say, "Why isn't the sun anywhere? Where, where's the sun? You know, what's right. the biggest thing there?" It's not like and, he was like happy about this or like no so to, 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 to like dispro- disprove some like underlying tenant of astrology, especially in that era of like the 1950s and 1960s. Like sun sign astrology, I'm sure was becoming really popular at that point. In 1968, you had the publication of Linda Goodman's. Sun signs book, and you have you know all of the that that generation coming into the astrological community at that time, and then you have this guy who's doing the first large scale statistical studies, and he's saying I can't I can't find any statistical correlation with the sun at the moment of birth. In fact, nor with sun signs because he's when he was a teenager back in France, he had just dispensed with with sun signs entirely. That was one of the things he did: this test, that test, the other test. And couldn't find anything. He just finally said, I'm not going to bother with this anymore. Right. He couldn't actually find anything with the zodiac, the, the 12 sign tropical zodiac. He couldn't find any st- statistical correlations at all in right. anything, or at least never never published anything that he found or couldn't find anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I was just this afternoon looking at his, his uh, one of his later Dahlia volumes, which was, uh, it was all on the, the failed, the failed stuff, the outer planets and the sun, and he was just, he you know, he talked about it in his books up to that point. This was the publication, and it was for the profession. This, you know, all the same thing for the same professions, and they were just flat lines all the way through. So, he just, like I said, he he gave up on that pretty early, but he covered his bases and 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 eventually published the results to show people this is what. I did, and this is what I came up with. It did bother him. Uh, I, I, I know it certainly bothered him in, in, in respect to the diurnal stuff, and in, in respect to those sectors, that there was just didn't seem to be anything there, because he always felt that there should have been. Sure. So one of the interesting things, though, is that he didn't think that. In terms of these planetary correlations of planets rising or culminating, or just after rising and culmination, coinciding with certain people eventually becoming eminent in certain career fields, he didn't think that the planets were like causing eminence. But instead, one of the early conclusions that he seems to have drawn was that it had to do with um, people having certain character traits and thinking that people with those character traits would be more likely to achieve success in a specific field 
Um, and yeah. that ended up being because because one of the things is once you find these results, then the immediate question is how could it at all be possible, or or why would it be possible for Mars rising or culminating to correlate with people who become eminent athletes? And so he speculated that maybe it had to do with character traits at that time for some reason. Well, yes, and and, and in, fa in fact, it was both. These two things are related. It's they're related to what Artel called the the three pillars of Gokulan's work, and one was, of course, the the basic results. The other was the character traits, and the other was uh, heredity, because character right, so traits are in part uh, determined by your chromosomes, in part. So he framed this very early. I think it, it was in his 1960 book, his second book, where he said, "Here is here is a here's a plan. Here's what I'm going to look at from now on." And heredity, he had to. It eventually it seemed to work, and then eventually it didn't because further samples. And in fact, when he began working at astrocomputing. And they recalculated the data and everything. The numbers went down a little bit, so then he decided to do some more samples, and that then it turned out that it, it just didn't seem to be there. He really did seriously give up on that. Sure, um, and, and let me just explain some background. So the three pillars sure. are the three like main conclusions, or or initially early in his studies, the three main what he thought were positive conclusions indicating some sort of astrological correlation. And the first one was planets rising or culminating, essentially correlating with profession, which is the main yes. one, which includes the Mars effect, as well as other planets correlating with different fields. The yes. second one is is heredity, where initially one of his initial conclusions is that he thought he had found a statistically significant correlation where parents with planets in certain plus zones, like let's say rising or just following culmination, were more likely to have kids with the same planet yes, in one exactly. in one of the four one of the four plus zones. Exactly. So that means could you give me an example of that? So let's say somebody, a parent who has Mars just after the midheaven is more he thought was more likely to have a child that would have Mars uh, in one of the four plus zones, so either just after the ascendant, the midheaven, the descendant, or the IC. Yes, and and in fact, uh, it, it's interesting to me that I see this kind of thing on a case by case basis all the time, and it's so it's kind of odd to me. I mean, it seems like it should be there, and it seems like it is there in some sense. I mean, I was, right. I was born with Jupiter rising. I have a, a daughter with Jupiter in the midheaven, so. You know what's the problem? But he couldn't prove it in a, in a with data. Sure, and and I think early in his studies he started thinking that that could have been part of the explanatory mechanism as well was something connected to heredity that was being passed down either generationally or in terms of character traits from like parent to child was yes. something that was exactly because he was trying to figure out what the mechanism is because the question is is once you find these a correlation between like planets rising or culminating in profession the next question is what could possibly be causing this correlation to be happening not not necessarily to explain it but the three avenues of study were were in order to to broaden the picture so to speak so that that you you could then begin to work on things that would be more familiar to science 
Let's put it that way. Sure. So the, so the first one was the professions. The second one was heredity, which is one that you said later in his life. I think Ertel criticized and ended up, Gokland himself ended up moving away from and not thinking was as important later in his life. But then the third pillar uh, was character traits that he started doing a separate study at some point with, I think, with Francois uh, of like biographies and character traits and certain planets yes. coinciding not with profession necessarily, but specifically with certain character traits. Yes, in fact. What, what okay. he would do, what he did briefly was, for example, with Mars, he found, he knew what he had found. And then he would test athletes with these character traits that he had gathered from biographies. That proved out. And then he would take those same character traits and he would apply them to the other professions because they all have Mars someplace. And when he did this, uh, he found that even in these other professions, people with Mars and those focal ancestors would match these character traits to some extent. That was the that was the way he did it. Okay, and their selection processes they would like read through biographies and extract just traits, individual extract trait words. Okay. Um, all right. So that those are the three sort of pillars and. In other areas, one of the other interesting things about the profession study is that some plus zone studies, it wasn't just about planets being in certain zones like the ascendant or, or around the midheaven coinciding with a, a greater amount of eminent, let's say, athletes or eminent people in a certain uh, profession, but he also no noticed a negative correlation where certain placements correlated with um, less of a likelihood at a person being eminent in a certain professional field. So there was both a positive and a negative effect. Like for example, yes. he said that Jupiter being placed in a plus zone coincided with a lower frequency uh for scientists and physicians. Yes. Or exactly. um, I think I think Saturn was a lower frequency for actors, journalists, writers, and painters. Yes. Mars was was lower for painters, musicians, and writers, and the moon was lower for sports champions. Yes. That so was all all the way through, so there were two sides to the to the Gokulan effects, in other words. Sure. So that, which then introduces an interesting additional sort of facet of all of this, where there's something else, you know, that's curious about it that's going on, where it's not just planets being prominent indicating something, but there's something else going on with planets being prominent can suppress like a certain profession or yeah. can lead to that profession not occurring as frequently. Yes, and and what is even more interesting is that when and he sh he showed this very early on, I think in his first book, he said, "Well, there's a pattern here. There's an interesting pattern here." But I don't think it was until after his death that uh, I, I know of three people. I was one of them, and and it's probably because we were all thinking he had died, and where do we go from here? And so they were looking very carefully at things. And they noticed that that there was a pattern to these results that was actually very astrological, that you could actually find in astrological texts. So even though the initial finding of the sectors and the rising and the setting and so on, where the planets were was a problem for astrology, but the actual patterns created by these planets was 
something that was very, very much astrological. And the pattern you're talking about, this is is this the thing that connects with the temperaments and the medieval temperament model? Yes. Exactly. Okay. Which you can find on that you can find that on on the website that I mentioned too. My website. Um, I just I just pulled the graphic from that Good. article you sent me earlier that you're working on and let me share it. It's not it's not very high resolution because of the way I copied it, but here it is. But because part of what the context that's interesting is that in his last book, I found it interesting in Neo Astrology in the 1991 book. It's like he is looking back a bit into history and he is kind of curious about that. But one of the almost unfortunate things that happened is it was just a few years after his death that the revival of interest in traditional astrology and some of the translation projects that were for the first time translating some ancient yeah. texts and, and recovering old conceptual models and techniques that had been lost started being discovered starting in like 19, 1992 and 1993 when Project Hindsight was formed. Yeah. And so one of them that was found was this old temperament model that was connected to sort of on one hand, like Aristotle's conceptualization of the differences between the qualities of hot and cold and wet and dry, and then how this tied into some me- medieval models for determining a person's character or temperament. Yes. And, and, and if you look, consider it as two dimensions, the hot, the cold, the moist, the dry. If you look on the hot side, you see Mars and Jupiter on that side, and you, then you see Venus and Saturn on the other side. On the other hand, if you look at the dry versus the moist, you see Mars and Saturn on the same side together. And on the moist side, you see the moon and Jupiter. Let's leave Venus out for the moment. And these, this this is exactly what is going on in the the results as a whole, is that when Jupiter is active, Mars may be active, but Saturn will not. When Mars and Saturn are active, Jupiter will be out of the picture, and so will the moon. So there's very obviously, and this is, as I said, this was probably around 1992 or 93 when I became aware of it, and I started writing about it in the column I was writing at that time. And uh, uh, a British astrologer, Graham Douglas, noticed the same thing and published something on it. And then there was a German astrologer, Arno Mueller, who also noted this. So it's very much around the same time. And as I said, it was probably because we were all looking for the next thing. And I don't know what that means but in terms of this diagram, but there is something meaningful there, very definitely. Sure. Well, yeah, and, and not just looking for it, but there was new information that was becoming available for the first time at that point where sure. you know, there wasn't translations of like medieval or... Uh, Greco-Roman astrological text up until that point, yes. which, which sadly wasn't until just a few hours, a-, a few years after Gokland died. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. I mean, there was this sort of little break there, quieted down after that. But you know, the the researchers went off and did other things and uh, so on. I'm still doing things on this. I'm not writing about it so much, but I work on it sure. every day. Sure, and we'll let's talk about that post Gokland era in just a second. But before we wrap up this section, the last thing I want to mention is just he did say at one point, and I was curious if this is still true that I think he said that the plus zones did not seem to work for induced births or for C-section births, 
or that the effect seemed to disappear. Is that true, or am I remembering that correctly? Or that yeah, there was something but, about induced births that was an, an issue or a factor in looking at the results. Yes, essentially what he was getting at and what what he what he believed but couldn't prove was that this was in a way a response to the environment. And and just the way each one of us res- responds to the environment in different ways. Uh some people like rainy days, some people like sunny days and so on. This was an environmental response, and it was the infant, because the infant is the one that triggers birth, unless the doctor shows up with the knife or the chemicals to, to induce the birth. So he felt these, these things were, were very much the same. Okay, and, th- and that was a conclusion that he, he drew after seeing the effect not show up as strongly or not showing up at all in the statistics if it was an induced birth, or is it something where he's trying to understand things after the fact and trying to come up with models that make sense and thought it was like a natural, it must be a natural thing and that interrupting the natural order could be problematic that he was more speculating on. I guess I wasn't clear on that point. I suspect that when he just looked at this and maybe around the time he was starting to do the, the heredity experiments, that he felt that there was that if he then if he if he compared induced births with other births, and this, yes, this would have been around the time he was doing the heredity stuff. That it essentially would not be there, or if he could find among his data, he could find people that he knew had been uh, delivered by cesarean, that they would not show the effect, and so on. But it was never anything that was exactly proved. There, there was no. No way to be sure of it, except that I think in the case of the Mars effect, he did, since he was able to study it over a longer period of time, he said that during the years when it became more likely that a person would be delivered by, on schedule, so to speak, usually by an induced birth, chemically induced birth, that that the effect appeared to lessen. Not disappear necessarily, but in a database it would lessen, but he couldn't be sure that that was the reason. Okay. So he maybe started seeing a drop-off in the correlation with some of the birth data in some of the later studies that were using birth data for people that would have been born later versus the earlier ones where it was showing up more frequently. And so it may have been a speculation on his part because he was aware that from like the 60s and 70s onward especially that C-section started becoming more popular. Right, yeah. Or more more common, I should say. Let, let's say it was an informed speculation, but it wasn't something he could directly prove. Right. It, it's just tricky because it's it's not even something that's usually recorded on like a birth certificate, whether it was an induced birth or not. It usually just has the birth data and the time. So I'm sure it would be something that's a little bit difficult to to study in the same way that he did for just you know large-scale study of timed births where you can get the birth certificate. Well, Yes, exactly. But uh, as I said, with 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 where he could extend the data over a long period of time, it was in the twentieth century and toward the middle of the twentieth century that, like for, for example, with the sports data, that you if you lined it up by decade or something like that, you would find that it seemed to be going down. And he he assumed that that was evidence for, as I say, an informed speculation. 
Right. Um, and that's even more problematic now because I know I, I've I sat in on a lecture and I was hoping to do an interview sometime with Wendy Stacy from the UK who did a study showing that um, induced births and C-section births are becoming more and more common yeah. and it's leading to a, a disproportionate amount of people being born during the day during like normal business hours yeah. because that's when doctors are like at the hospital and they can schedule it when it's right. convenient. Uh, yeah. which is kind of has interesting implications sort of astrologically and in terms of this certainly if Gokland's spe- speculation is true that the effect disappears if it's an induced birth yes yeah all right so um that kind of brings us to the last part of this so Gokland's final book came out in 1991 and he i think he wrote he he was found dead in his apartment in Paris in, in earlier in 1991 in May of 1991 in an apparent uh, suicide, right? Yes. Okay. Um, do you know what was going on with him? I mean, one of the questions, and I'm always surprised if skeptics don't try to make this argument more. But why did he? Was he dealing with depression due to due to some of the fights with the skeptics and the lack of his results being accepted? Was he dealing with personal issues? I know that he, you know, his his marriage with Francois ended in the mid 1980s or early 1980s and I don't know if that's relevant I think he was remarried or something I mean what may have led to to hit that happening well for one thing that that conversation that I relayed would have taken like it would have been 6 months 5 months before he died he was feeling his age and he was he was a, actually an amateur sports uh, tennis champion in France so uh being physically fit was natural to him, and it was part of the reason he was able to exert this energy uh, to do the research that he did. Uh, so that was part of it. And part of it also was what did, in fact, I think back to two conversations, one in 1989, plus the other one, the, the more recent one that I mentioned. And uh, it was what he mentioned to me in 1989. A lot of it was about Francoise, because I had sent someone to the UAC. I was eighty nineteen eighty nine New Orleans. I had sent somebody there to interview a group of people, and he was one of them. And Francoise was one of them too. There were five or six. So the interviewer Jim Erickson calls me up and he says, "Michelle is refusing to be interviewed." He says. He says, if you're, if you're going to interview Francois, he's not going to talk to me. So okay. I had to call him up and try to convince him. And he, I had developed a, a he, he understood me and we, we worked pretty well together. Not we worked that much, but we understood each other. And he, he felt that I was on the up and up, I guess. And I, I convinced him. I said, look, don't worry about it. We're not, looking for like scandal or what you say about each other or anything like that. She just has a dis- different perspective and she's done some different things than you you have. And uh, so he eventually relented. But in between that, he was, he told me about all these things. And at one point he said, he says, because of what had been going on with her, he says, it's not fun anymore. He says, I'm ready to take all of this and tell Francois, it's all yours. I'm finished with it. 
And that was kind of the way he closed out the conversation. It was like toward the end of the conversation. So then in December when I talked to him, the now of the next year, he first of all said, I'm tired and blah, blah, blah. And then he said, let's see, Neil Mickelson, who he had been very close to because of the helping him with his work, had died. Uh, and then he said his best friend from back when he was young had killed himself. Now, after this was all, and also he was having a dispute with Ertel over the character trait work. Right, because Ertel, while starting to get into in the mid-1980s Gokland's work and, and validating and thinking there was something to the profession correlation, like the Mars effect, when he looked at the other two pillars of Gokland's work, the heredity studies and the character type studies, he felt that those were not valid. And he thought that Gokland had accidentally introduced bias in the data yes. collection yes. and therefore the effect was not real. So so it meant that while there was this new researcher, Gokland himself is like coming off of at this point two or three decades of fighting with the skeptics in order to even have his tests, you know, replicated yes. and then fighting to acknowledge that. And then you know, Ertel comes along and he's sort of an ally in some sense, and that he's actually validating some of his work, but in other areas, he's he's saying it's not real or that it, he's sort of disproving some of it. Yes, well, that was exactly it, and and there was a, a, an episode uh, when they were having their internal discussions. Uh, Ertel had had one of his uh, students who he was supervising a PhD. Uh, focus on this and do something on the on the character trait work, and uh, he showed what the conclusions were, and they were not favorable. So Michelle had said, "Can we discuss this further before you publish on it?" And Sweetbert said, "Sure, of course." And then, unfortunately, in a lecture, uh, somebody came up. He he actually it was okay for him to lecture on it. He lectured on it. Someone came up to him after the lecture and said, oh, could I have the the, the handout thing you're using? Because he always read his speeches. Could I have this? Because I'm going to write an article on it. And uh, so this would help me to, to get the background right. Well, what happened was the article ended up published mm -hmm. in, in the NCGR journal. And, of course, Michelle, that was it for him and her tell. He says, well, you know, get you agreed with me to do this, and now you you did this, and and Sweeper just couldn't get him to understand that I did not do this on purpose. That, that was, was an accident. Yeah, that was so, part of it. But finally, and part of that with the character study was that he thought that Michelle and Francois, when they went through and read the biographies and collected the character traits, that they introduced bias because the people doing it knew what the plus zones were and what the correlation should be. And so yes. he, he thought that that introduced bias into it. Yes. And in fact, you you can actually, I agree with Ertel. The bias was there. I don't agree with actually either or either Ertel or Gokulant. I think there's evidence for not character traits, but personality in there if it's done the right way. But yes, the data itself was bothered, so to speak, by by having this foreknowledge of the sectors and so on. 
But anyway, the the final thing was that uh, I, I guess that was the final thing. He had those three things going, and I'll tell you after after he died, and I was going through all kinds of changes about it. And I went to the library and I looked up some books on suicide. And the first one I opened had all of these markers, like a list of 10 or 15 for men who killed themselves over 60, uh, trouble with relationships, trouble with colleagues or your, your work. And it's like, like 10 out of the 15 were him. Oh, and yes, people that he knows having committed suicide. So there were all right. these, all of these markers there. And it was the kind of thing where you felt like, you know, if I thought that if I thought about this and I, I had only, I'd only actually talked to Michelle twice in person over the years from when I first met him. I thought if I'd like in person, but you'd corresponded with him a lot, corresponded with him a lot, talked to him on the phone occasionally. I thought okay. if I'd known this, I would have just, I would have gotten on a plane going to Paris and, you know, said, let's have, let's talk. Yeah. I mean, that's something, there's been a lot of discussion about that. It seems like just the past couple of years where there's been a lot of celebrity deaths or deaths of musicians where one sure. musician has committed suicide and then a close friend of theirs, like a few months later, does the same thing. And, and this idea of when somebody, some in some instances, if you're prone to that, if there's somebody close to you that does it, that, that, for some reason, that can raise the Push chances over that the you line, yes, right somehow. Um, okay, so he passed away in uh, May of 1991, and I'm looking at the intro to his last book, Neo Astrology, and they refer to him in like on like the cover or the inside jacket almost in passing. So it seems like this book must have come out later in 1991 after he, he did, yes. died, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and it's a really great synopsis of his work and everything that I would really recommend. Do you th recommend this as being an okay starting point for his for his work for understanding it? Yes, especially at this point. I, I, I almost all of his books are. Well, some of his books, I think, cosmic influences on human behavior, which is earlier. That's still yeah. available. There's a publisher that's picked it up. But yeah. uh, the the neo astrology you can find almost all of his books you can find used. They sold well enough that they're still around, and you can buy them for from Amazon, Abe Books, or places like that. And I recommend sure. it. Sure. So he passed away in 1991. Um, Ertel, you know, came in and was already doing some of his analysis where. Initially, he was skeptical about Gokulin's work, but then he came to see the results, or some of the results, yeah. is valid. Um, he attempted to encourage other scientists to take the studies more seriously and actually look into it. Um, I'm not sure how successful he was in, in doing that. He also an analyzed and attempted to fix some of Gokulin's mistakes in his studies and continued to publish papers and things in the years after Gokulin's death to do some of that to both you know, yes. confirm the results that seem valid, but also to point out the areas where he felt that Gokulin had weaknesses in his work in order to yes. re remove those. Yes, yes, exactly. And he did a, did a good job of it. Sure. So he, um, Ertel found that the, as we said earlier, only pr the profession correlation to be valid, but he did not find the heredity or the character traits to be valid. And Gokulin himself had moved away from heredity 
but tried to defend the character traits study uh, towards the end of his life. Yes, and, and as did, I believe, Francoise after he died. She, I believe she had an ongoing discussion with her tell about it. And he eventually convinced her that, that the problem that he had seen was there. Sure. And so Francois I have heard. Actually, I don't know for sure. So, and, and Francois actually continued the work. She continued this research until about 1997 or so yes. uh, before she retired and then ended up passing away in 2007. Yes. Okay. And I noticed she even started looking into some of the um, ancient texts that were being translated at that time and started trying to apply some of that to some of the results as well, which I always thought was kind of interesting. Anyway, but so this brings us to the post past like two decades, almost three decades now since his death and the sort of post Gokulin era where to me looking at this like two decades later and trying to track things that have happened, it seems like a lot of the excitement surrounding scientific research of astrology died out in the 1990s, especially after he died. And it went from this era, just for me looking back, I only got into astrology around the year 1999 or 2000, but it seemed like it went from a few decades where astrologers thought that astrology was about to be validated scientifically or that it could be to a lot of disappointment where there were tests that were either not coming back positive or were disputed heavily so that it, it didn't end up being like a, a win for astrology necessarily or a clear-cut win for astrology. And because there were other tests outside of Gokulin that also didn't do terribly well or were sometimes poorly done but nonetheless didn't do very well, and astrologers began talking more about how science couldn't validate astrology. And this is where you get works like Jeffrey Cornelius's The Moment of Astrology yes. in 19, 1994, I think. But even Gokulin and some of his later works, like Neo-Astrology, is already referring to this trend. So it seems like that was already going on at some point in his lifetime towards the end of it, of astrologers initially being excited about his work validating astrology, but then either when it when it showed when he was saying that large parts of astrology didn't work or when his results themselves were being questioned astrologers started uh sort of turning away from doing scientific research on astrology in general i mean is that an accurate perspective on things would you yes, say yes i i i think so and i i think it's unfortunate that uh i i have i i think i have an entirely different view about all of this than 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 astrologers in general, and and it ha has to do with something I wrote in a, 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 a an edition of correlation that I edited, and I, the the editorial in the front was entitled "The Mantic and the Metric," and I I've, I've seen this frankly I've felt this way ever since I came to astrology, largely because of Gokulin, uh in the early seventies, that. The horoscope, the standard horoscope, has two layers to it. And one is what I call the metric layer, which is the measurable layer. The planets, their diurnal rotation, their orbits around the sun, where they are, their relationships, their geometric relationships with each other, those are all measurable. On the other hand, what I call the mantic layer really is not, because it consists say, of things like house rulers and uh, points and parts that are derivatives of different configurations in the chart. 
And and actually, that's something that Jeffrey Cornelius, I feel, covers very well. Because the, another name for the mantic layer is the intuitive layer. I don't think that that is invalid in the sense it's scientifically the only way that it can be addressed is by looking at what astrologers do with it which has been a very it's been a high a a lot of research done on that but it's not to worry that Gokulan's work does not address the layer that most astrologers use in their everyday work there are two different things they can work together, but uh, most of the time, who knows whether they do or not. Sure. I mean, there's. I guess there's two points there. I mean, one, Cornelius and some of those people in the aftermath of the 70s and 80s and the failure of some of the scientific tests were sure. trying to explain the failures of, of these tests under the premise that the attempts failed and, and trying to address the question of how could astrology still work but not be demonst- demonstrable statistically if that was the situation that that we had run into but then there's a question with with your the distinction you're making there it sounds like you're making a distinction between there's the astronomy and which is just the measurable part essentially and then there's the interpretive aspect which might be mantic or divinatory is basically what cornelius argued and i had him on in a past episode where he explained why he thinks that astrology is divination and why he thinks, therefore, if it is divination, then it's a it's a misconception, or you're it's a not understanding the subject properly to even attempt to think that you could validate it scientifically or statistically in that context. But it sounds like with the distinction you're making, that it's not completely you have the astronomy over here, and then you have the divination interpretation aspect over here. Because if Gokulin's work was true at all, then there would be some small piece. Of astrology that would be statistically observable, where there would be something that's not divination, that's an objective correlation yes. between right. the planets and and human life, and that there there would be some small part of astrology that would therefore be scientific and like part of the natural world, rather than being something that's purely divinatory or or supernatural or what have you. Yes, and <laughs> that. When you when you use the word, I think you just used the term natural science. Uh, I, some years ago, I was having a discussion with Jeffrey, and uh, you know he knew my background and everything. He says, "Well, he says, well, how do you see astrology?" And I said, "Well, astrology, as I as I study and as I use it, is I consider it a natural science." And he almost choked on his. We were eating dinner. <laughs> he, he kind of, you know, had this little start, and he thought. I mean, I think he knew what the answer would be. There would be something like that, but but I do see that side of it. But I don't, I don't damn the other side of it. That's the thing is, I think that what he thinks, what Gokulan thought, are can coexist. Put it that way. Sure, that it might be elements of both, and it doesn't have to be like one or the other in in an extreme sense. Yeah. You don't have to wait for the man with the calculator to tell tell you what you can do. You just go ahead and do it. Something like sure. that. But you have to understand what the man with the calculator is doing. And if you do, you'll be better at what you do. Right. That there's certain things that you can gain from approaching the subject and understanding what are the scientifically, the yes. parts of astrology that could perhaps be validated scientifically. And that there's something about 
attempting to do that, even if it's only some small part of astrology that can be validated in that way, that's worthwhile to to take the work to do, and that that's a an, an honorable or or otherwise good pursuit, good thing to pursue. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, in terms of the conclusions, I mean, there were some questions I had at the end to just wrap this up of things like, what are the what's the legacy of Gokulin? What's the take-home lesson for astrologers? Um, Is the quest to validate astrology scientifically still a worthwhile quest, even though it seems like many astrologers have almost given it up? Um, Is it a feasible quest to validate astrology scientifically, which we kind of just touched on? And if so, if it is feasible, what can we learn from Gokulin to improve those efforts in the future? And you, in this paper you sent me this morning, you actually had two conclusions that kind of touch on a lot of that, where you said, when research, one of your conclusions is that when research proves negative answers, it may be because we don't understand how to ask the right questions. And two, that when research is successful, showing results that match our expectations in some respect, they are often at the same time quite different from our expectations and in ways we couldn't necessarily anticipate. Yes. Those are some of your conclusions from Gokulin's right. work. Yes. Yes, they are. Uh, um and I will say one more thing about his legacy. I think his legacy is it's possibly going to improve by findings in other fields coming from another direction. And in fact, in the in the correlation issue I mentioned, in the back of it, I have a thing titled a brief memo on LST effects, meaning local sidereal time, because some time, some years ago, uh, a fellow named Spottiswood, who's really a, a researcher on what's called psi—that's the modern term for ESP—had gone over, had, had collected a bunch of what are called remote viewing experiences, experiments, which is people sitting in a lab somewhere and find looking at things that are like 10,000 miles away and describing them. And this was used by, there was a military project on this. But So uh, he took these remote viewing experiences, and they all had s- scores, and he lined up the scores and compared them with solar time, just the clock, and sidereal time. And what he did, what he found was he says in in the the initial paper, he says, first of all, the effect seems to become narrower as latitude is greater because he had the longitude and latitude of the places where the experiments were done. And he said also the maximum effect, there was an effect of sidereal time Here's the sidereal time, and here's where the maximum effect occurred. And if you translate that into Gokulan sectors, what he was saying was that the exact measurements he gave are a Gokulan sector for the latitude of 37 north, but only if you consider it, only if you look at one thing, that he also skates by in his paper, which is the galactic center. And I hate to mention that because I know there's been all this 
hoo-ha in the past few years about things that were going on with the Galactic Center, and people get all mystic about it. Nothing right. mystic about this. When the sidereal time that he mentions is the maximum sidereal time, whereas there's a maximum effect where the scores are the best, coincides with a Gokulan sector at the latitude where the mean of these experiments were conducted. That's a mean latitude where the, where these experiments were conducted. Now, I think this, who knows what this is. And as I understand it, this researcher has gone back and forth over the years. He's not sure that what he found initially was was really there, and then he thinks it is, and so on. He's sort of gone back and forth about it. All I know is the numbers add up, and it doesn't make any sense. Because, and in fact, Sweetbert had, at one point, he, he's, he was into psi toward the end of his life. He was becoming involved in psi studies. And he approached this guy, and he says, this, you know, you've got something here that seems to be a cosmic effect. And he asked him to sort of compare it with some of the Gokulan stuff. They exchanged data and everything, and apparently that didn't work out. So maybe that means nothing. But the point is, it's very possible that what Michel was hoping to prove, he did prove something, obviously, but what he was hoping to prove as far as, I don't know, cause and effect or to this being a broader thing than, than he was able to find, will possibly come from outside. Maybe that Spottis woodwork is not what I suspect it is. Maybe somebody else will come up with something. Who knows? But I think it's a real thing, and therefore it's got to have some kind of connection with the rest of the universe outside of the astrological universe, so to speak. Does that sure. make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, and that, you know, who who knows where things where this could become relevant or where some of those results could become relevant again yes. and and have some support or may need to be revisited at some point in the future. Sure. Um and and for astrologers presently it seems like one of the the major take home lessons or one of the major issues that we that came out of all of this and out of Gokland's work was the issue with attempting to fit the results into traditional astrology versus seeing them in their own light. And this question of sometimes like when to modify the tradition seems like a major factor with with Gokland's work. Like if you did take his results to be valid with Mars and other planets, for example, being more prominent or more indicative of certain career eminence when they're in the cadence side of the of the ascendant in midheaven, if that means the astrological tradition should be modified as a result of that. And like changed, and some of the questions surrounding that. But the, you know, one of the interesting things about his work is just that he came up with results that he didn't necessarily always expect, and sometimes had to draw conclusions and develop a form of astrology that was different than he might have anticipated at first. And that might be something that people need to understand going into something like this that the results may not be what you expect. Yes, yes. And I, I also think one avenue of, to be explored is something that I did in the, the articles I mentioned in American Astrology. Part of what I was trying to do was trying to find out how to put what Gokulan did in an interpretive setting. And essentially, what I came to by the end of it was 
I was trying to teach people who do standard charts, regular astrology, how to at least use those ninth, twelfth, sixth, third house things. How to use the planets of those places in the context of the regular chart work. And by the end of the four years when I did this, a couple of my regular writers were starting to do this. One was a sidereal writer, the other was tropical, like very standard. And they were both starting to use these things in the way that I had been exploring and sending me articles with using Gogoland stuff and, and regular old astrology together. Now, that was just exploratory, experimental, and it wasn't scientific by any means. But I do think it's possible to sure. bring it into the light that way. Sure. And an attempt to so you tried to sort of merge a little bit of, of traditional or contemporary astrology with the Goklid results and try to figure out a way to reconcile it versus he was taking more of an extreme approach of of trying to rebuild astrology from scratch just based on what you could confirm statistically. Yeah. So something like that. But it was it was all I was flying by the seat of my pants, although I was basing it on the whole entire series was based on data. I had data, Gokulan sectors, and I would study biographies, and I'm saying, so how can how can we pull something out of this to turning it into something that can be used every day? And I hope to get back to that. I don't know whether I will. I, I'm not sure that I really like the whole series of articles itself. Otherwise, I might just like take them and all put them together. But because I was really trying things out that. Sometimes we're risky and sometimes we're silly, probably. Sure. Uh, sure. And ironically, it's interesting that today, a few decades later, it's like there's databases where you can run the Goklin um, yeah. database or, or certain par parts of it on like your personal computer at home yeah. to test different things, right? I mean, is the entire database now available in different software programs or is it just, I think it's part of the database at least? I, I'm not really sure who who have, has has done how much on this, actually. I don't know if there's, for example, if one of the standard programs where you, you, you can read everything in and then have it calculate sectors, aspects, whatever you want to. I don't know for sure exactly, exactly where that stands. I do know that uh, David Cochran of Kepler has been exploring this so sure. i've had and uh so yeah that 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 possibility is there the only problem with that is that there is a lack of discipline even right. among people who understand statistics and scientific process there is often a, a lack of discipline so that people will come up with it's very easy to read this stuff in and come out with great-looking graphs that really don't tell you anything, right? Or, or the result of like artifacts and not realizing that they think they've found some great correlation with something, yes. but then it turns out that there's some factor that they're not taking into account that's not astrological that's causing the results to look that way that they just don't know about or haven't taken into account. Yeah, yeah, and there's also a lot of mixing and matching, uh, taking things that have no relationship to each other, like house rulers and 
Gogol ancestors or something, and trying to mash them all together and, and and turn them into something. And it's not. It's as I said. It's like taking those those two layers that I think constitute the horoscope and, and and mixing them together when they don't really belong there. They have to be integrated here, but they're not. They can't be integrated scientifically. Sure. Well, one of the things maybe a good take home lesson is that anybody that wants to approach the statistical study of astrology, if you wanted to do that in the future, needs to take Oakland's work into account. If for no other reason than he's run into a lot of the different artifacts and other issues that you need to be aware of and be careful about when you do these types of large scale statistical studies in astrology. And instead of like repeating all of those same mistakes over again, it would be better to sort of build on his work and, and sort of stand on those shoulders rather than starting over from scratch and perhaps, you know, making a mistake that Gokulin made but then learned from fifty or sixty years years ago. Well yes, and and probably the best way of anybody who wants to make any use at all of the Gokulin data should probably start with uh, the book I mentioned earlier called Written in the Stars, which is a, a very concise summary, goes into a lot of the technical problems and so on, and explains them very, very well. You can start with that. If you can get hold of the French works, you should start with that, and you can read French. You should start with those. You, Who's the words, author you, of Written in the Stars? Uh, Michel Gauquelin. Oh, written in okay, I got it. That's so just, is, is that his second book? No, no. Or is this that... is uh this was published in nineteen eighty-eight. Okay. So it's one of his later books written in yeah. the stars. Yeah. It's not in print anymore, but as I say, like a lot of these things, you could you could get it online pretty easily. Sure. That will explain to you a lot of the technical problems. Okay. Perfect. And one last question. Uh, one of my friends, Patrick Watson, recently was trying to experiment with the Gokulin data and was figured figured out how to import it, part of it into Solar Fire. One of the issues that he ran into, though, is that for a lot of older birth times, they often are rounded. And if that, how much of an issue that is versus more recent times that aren't aren't rounded or seem to be more exact in terms of filtering this out and figuring out what's relevant versus what's not because sometimes we don't know how widely rounded a time is the, the the especially the european data and especially the french data up to a certain era i'm not sure what it, it was reported that way sometimes it was reported the quarter hour the half hour uh whether or not the parents the parents were supposed to register this but it may have been common practice or in the law or whatever to register the birth to the nearest chunk rather than the exact minute. It's just in the data as it as it came from from the uh, birth registries. And it's been studied to see whether it had any effect on the Gokulin effects in particular. Uh, uh, Tom Shanks, who I mentioned earlier, at Astrocomputing did a study of this and found that there was really really didn't affect anything. So it's not important. Sure. I guess I could just see if somebody wanted to build a new database, a new, I could see that as being a factor that you might take into account of, you know, is a birth time rounded or not? It was just a discussion that came up on a recent episode on rectification and that question of, you know, some astrologers believe that every chart should be rectified because every time might be 
rounded or might not be exact, and some of those questions surrounding the exactitude of recorded birth times. Yeah, but that rectification is a, is an art. Right. <laughs> it's an art. Yeah. Everybody does it differently. Everybody has their own perfect thing that they can do. If you're dealing with data, you just take it as it comes. Because sure. you're dealing with data in an aggregate, not an individual. And you take all of the data as it comes to you, and then you just do what, it, what you need to do. Sure. I guess it would just be important to take into account that not assuming every time you're using it is an exact time, but understanding many of them may be rounded, perhaps could be relevant when you're approaching the study to some extent. Uh, mostly it just doesn't matter. If you're, if you're sure of the source of the data, if the source is a, like I say, a, a, a government source or a, a, some other data source that, where people have collected this, you just use what you get. You don't, you don't mess with it. You just sure. get, get your, get your uh, time zones right and all that and your daylight savings time right. But just leave it as it is because if you start messing with it, you don't know what you're going to come up with. Yeah, you definitely don't want to introduce bias into it or, or worse, attempt to rectify it and then run statistical tests on rectified sure. data. That would exactly. Be, that would be bad. Um, all right, cool. Well, I think that, that kind of brings us to, we've covered a lot of ground here. Is Are there any points that we need to cover in, in sort of wrapping this up that I or questions I should have asked that I didn't that you can think of? I don't know. If you have another week. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we covered a surprising amount of ground in two and a half hours. So so thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me and to, and to share this. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank it. you. It was um, an enjoyable discussion. It was. Yeah. Uh, and I hope uh, people enjoyed it. If people have questions, can they can they get a hold of you or, or where can people find out more information about you or your work? Oh, they should go to that website that I mentioned, especially the, I have two websites, but, but that one, I'm about to move it. But, uh, if they write to me at, uh, say planetlines at gmail.com, that would be probably the quickest way to get hold of me. Okay. And what was the URL? It was planetos.org. O-R-G. Dot, dot org. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot for, for joining me today. Okay. Thank you. All right. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks to all the patrons who supported it. Uh, please be sure to like and subscribe, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.